Hey church, uh, Jason Miller here, and this is a slightly different style of teaching that podcast episode. Uh, what's going on this weekend is we're very excited for our gatherings together in person, and typically the podcast comes from those gatherings. However, it is a very, very, very cold weekend in South Bend, Indiana, and the furnace is not working at Studebaker 112, and the parts that are going to be required to service it uh, are not going to be around until Monday. So we're not gathering in person, uh, but we're uh, working hard to make sure that this uh, episode comes out uh, as quickly as possible, and so you can get the teaching that we're going to hear from the Sermon on the Mount that we've been working through. And not just the teaching, uh, but a special meditation that we were really looking forward to in the gathering. You'll hear more about that in a bit. And also uh, a song that we were going to learn this week that was going to help us pray and reflect on the thing that we are hearing from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, we're going to get into it. We're going to jump into the text. Uh, We've been with Jesus in these teachings since the beginning of September. And what we heard from the very beginning is Jesus saying that God is so good and so generous that God wants to give God's self to us and live God's life through us, and that there's nothing about us or our circumstance or our history, there's, there's nothing about the things that we've done or the things that have happened to us that can render us ineligible for that gift. And rather, he seems to think that we just need to like learn how to trust that gift and, and dance with it and, and live with it. And then he seems to be giving us pictures, snapshots, practices, cautions, warnings, invitations about the nature of that life with God. And we hear another uh, picture of that life, and there's some warning here and some invitation in what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 25 and 34. But before I read that to you, let me also remind you that on Easter, we're going to invite people into baptism, and, um, and the baptisms will happen that Sunday in the middle of April. And between now and then, we'll do more and more to try to help you understand what that invitation is. But for today, I'll say again that everything Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 about the nature of a life where God gives God's life to us and lives God's life through us, all of that is the invitation that somebody would be saying yes to if they want to be baptized. And so hopefully even today, this gives you a little more glimpse into what that might mean. Uh, So here we go. We'll jump into the text. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. And Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear, Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore, don't worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. All right, big, uh, big teaching from Jesus about worry and some meditations on the world around us here. Now, I don't know about you, but like when I hear this, um, the first feeling I have is a little bit like if somebody walked into the room and said, hey, everyone, this is really important. It's really important. I need all of you to not think about elephants. 
Like whatever you're doing, don't think about elephants. Don't think about their tusks and their trunks. Don't think about how cute the little ones are. Don't think about their big ears. Don't think about your favorite animated elephant character, whether it's Dumbo or Babar or Horton. Well, what are we all thinking about? Elephants, right? Of course. This is a little how I feel when I read Jesus' words about worry at the beginning, to, to be honest. At least at first. Like telling us to not worry doesn't seem to help much because now on top of all the things we're worried about, now we're worried about worry because worrying is worrying seems to be the kind of thing that disobeys Jesus' teachings and we don't want to do that. And there's so much to worry about right now. I mean, that's just real. There's a, there is actually a lot to worry about. Uh, our mental well-being has been assaulted during this pandemic. We're worried about sickness and political unrest and division and economic uncertainty. Uh, anybody reading the headlines could make a compelling case that worry is the most rational response to the world that we're living in right now. There's personal worry and there's the worry we're carrying as we become more socially conscious, like as we learn to live with empathy for others who are suffering in ways that we may not be. It, it's a lot to carry. But one of the first things you might notice about Jesus' teaching here is he doesn't actually ask us whether our worry is justified. He asks, what's it doing for you? Uh, here's the line. He said, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your span of life? Now, this, this is actually a question that we heard in a Sacred Questions series that we taught back at our Four Winds Fields gatherings outdoors at the baseball stadium last year. Or maybe that was two years ago. Who, who can know with COVID time? I don't know. But the question is something like, what is your worry doing for you? Not is it justified, not is it rational, not is it a natural response to the circumstances around you. Rather, what's it doing for you? Is it serving you? Is it equipping you? Is it making you better? Is it helping you love well? If your worry is anything like mine, the answer is no. It's not helping. It's just sitting on my chest and making it hard to breathe. It's keeping me up at night, so each day I start with a half tank wondering how I'll make it through. Now, regardless of whether there's reason to worry, there's even better reason to ask if Jesus can help us stop worrying because it's not doing us any good. And here's the good news. I think it's important to observe that Jesus doesn't just give us a command here. He gives us some coaching. Like this isn't just some random rule that he throws down, some standard that he gives us. Like, like here's the rule and here's the standard. Deal with it. Um, please don't let this idea that we shouldn't worry shame you. If you're struggling with worry, don't you dare hang your head. If anxiety has been an issue for you, please don't let these words become a heavier burden for you to carry. But Jesus is teaching us full of some wisdom here because he, I think he intends to help us, which is the difference between a coach and a commander, right? A coach is like he's, he, they get in your corner and they help you walk forward. And I think that um, what Jesus is doing to help us here is connected to everything else he's doing in the sermon. So let's try to like follow the threads here. Uh, notice this riff that Jesus gives us about what's happening in the natural world around us. He said, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you by worrying at a single hour to your span of life? Why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. And if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? 
And this is one of those things in the teaching where I think we, we miss the gift that Jesus is giving us if we don't actually do what he says. And that's the thing about like theology and Bible and a lot of what happens in church, right? As we like listen to scripture, we hear teachings about scripture, and we sit back and we say, wow, it was really great to think about that thing in scripture. But that's not what he said. He said, go look at the birds and look at the lilies. And I, I think we could take this like seriously. Like there's, there's not just like an idea here. There's a practice here. And I think it's, it's pretty like well theologically grounded too, by the way. Christian faith has always understood that the created world of nature is somehow a revelation of the character of God. Uh, there's a writer in the New Testament named Paul, and he says it like this in a letter that he wrote to a church in Rome. In Romans chapter 1, he said, The basic reality of God is plain enough. Open your eyes, and there it is. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes as such can't see. Eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of God's divine being. That's Paul in the letter to the Romans uh, through a translator named Eugene Peterson, saying that, no, you can actually look at the world around you and glean something about the creative life behind all of this. And it's interesting what happens if you actually take a look at the things like the birds and the lilies and everything else in creation. Not just a glance, but a meditation, a contemplative look, a long, studied look, doing the things that Jesus is telling us to do here. Now, um, there's a, a handful of designers and scientists who've done exactly that. Uh, maybe not for theological reasons, but, but hang with me for a second. Uh, a scientist, for example, named Janine Benyus did this. Benyus is a biologist and an innovation consultant, and she's one of the founders of an emerging discipline of design called biomimicry. And uh, I remember the first time I learned about this through a friend, it just blew my mind. It has energized me ever since. Now, the, the big idea in biomimicry is that nature has actually solved a lot of the design problems that we're struggling with. So rather than trying to get clever when we face design challenges, designers who practice biomimicry they have these other ideas. They say that you should get quiet and pay attention to nature. And in her book, Biomimicry, Innovation Inspired by Nature, by Benyus, she shares some, some of these success stories. And they're just beautiful and inspiring. And by the way, the examples I'm going to share with you, they're even more compelling if you like Google some pics for these. So they're, like, they're really easy to find. Just like Google some of the key terms I give you, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It's really exciting. So here's a few examples of the, the kind of thing that scientists have discovered when they look at the natural world and the way the natural world solves problems. So for example, uh, scientists discovered that the skin of a certain breed of shark didn't have bacteria growing on it, even though everything about the conditions surrounding the shark suggested that bacteria should be found on its skin. So they looked for answers like maybe the shark's skin secretes some chemical that has antibiotic properties, but that's not what was going on they eventually discovered that the, the surface of the shark's skin actually has a microscopic geometrically patterned texture that makes it nearly impossible for bacteria to adhere to the skin, and then they can't colonize on the skin and develop into biofilms. Now, you might think, who cares about shark skin and bacteria? But here's the thing. There's places like hospitals where people are trying to figure out how to have surfaces like doorknobs and countertops, right? Uh, where bacteria doesn't colonize because there's all this issue in hospital like staph infection spreading. And what they found out is when they mimicked this micro pattern in a synthetic surface and they applied it in hospital rooms, like they laid it on the countertops or the walls or whatever, 
they saw a dramatic reduction in surface bacteria, which is a really good thing for a hospital, all without having to use antibacterial chemicals. And that's because those chemicals are contributing to the rise of superbugs, these like really powerful bacteria that we don't want to create more of, right? So that's just one example. Here's another one. Bullet trains are called bullet trains because the front of them was originally shaped like a bullet, right? But if you've ever seen one today, like if you've been over in Japan, for example, you might notice that the design doesn't look like the front of a bullet anymore. The original bullet-shaped nose, it worked fine until the trains entered tunnels. But through the tunnel, pressure would build up in front of the train, and it would create this like sonic boom when it exited the tunnel, and that wasn't very exciting for the residents who lived nearby, right? So an engineer who's working on this problem realizes one day that kingfishers, these birds, are able to enter water without making a splash. And he redesigned the front of the bullet train by imitating the shape of the kingfisher's beak. And after his redesign, not only did the sonic booms end, but those trains are able to travel 10% faster and use 15% less energy than the old bullet train. And then here's one more. Here's like a, a technology, like a design solution that we're all familiar with that you may not know came from observing nature. Uh, this is probably the most well-known application of biomimicry. It's Velcro. In 1941, an engineer is walking his dog, and he notices those burrs that are sticking to both him and his dog from the field. And he put them under a magnifying glass, and he discovered that their clinging property was the result of these hundreds of tiny little hooks, which, is, of course, is how Velcro works. So Benyus gives these examples, the, the scientist who, who works on biomimicry. And then here's the quote from Benyus, and I was so moved by this in her book. She says, and I quote, we live in a competent universe and we are surrounded by genius. Let me say that again. Benya says, we live in a competent universe and we are surrounded by genius. So if Paul is right in that letter to the Romans, when he said that the natural world reveals God's traits or character, then maybe when Jesus tells worrying people to look at nature, he does that because he knows that when we do, we will be struck not just by God's beauty or power or creativity, but by his competency. Maybe we will be struck by the idea that God knows what he's doing. Maybe, by the way, this is why we have a bunch of research right now that shows that time spent in nature leads to improved mental health. And I'm sure there's lots of reasons for this, and I'm not like qualified to parse all this out. But even if we're not actively registering all of the brilliant designs that are at work in the natural world, it's like maybe somewhere in the subconscious or, or maybe somewhere in the soul, time spent in nature meditating on creation helps us remember the nature of the creator and sets us at ease. Now, this isn't just um, about mental health or personal well-being, although I think those are th really important, and I think God cares about those things. I think there's actually more at stake here. Uh, the whole passage that we're looking at begins with the word therefore, which means that the thing Jesus is saying that I just read for you at the beginning of, of this teaching, well, it begins with therefore, meaning means that it's tied to something Jesus said right before it. And the thing Jesus said right before it was, no one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. 
So Jesus isn't just speaking to people who need a little more me time in the woods or a day at the spa. Even though, by the way, I'm all for me time in the woods or a day at the spa, and I think he would be too. Self-care is beautiful and important. But he's specifically speaking to the idea that like the, the people he's talking to are people he's trying to get to remember that God wants to give God's life to you and live God's life through you. That, um, that this is for people who are saying yes to that invitation. This, that, that, that what's at stake here is that if we, we don't remember the competency of God, we might get so distracted by our anxiety that we're not able to live out this idea, this promise, this like vocation, this calling to be the people that God lives God's life through. Now, at the end of the passage that we're working on today, he reiterates, he says, strive first for the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. Which I know like that might sound like strange language. I don't know if kingdom of God resonates for you or like his righteousness. But I think what we're talking about is the life of God being lived in us and through us, being given to us and given through us to the world. And I think Jesus is saying that when we lose sight of the, the nature of God, the competency of God, he's saying um, you're at risk of of not being able to live out this beautiful calling as someone through whom God is living God's life. That the distractions of tomorrow, the, the way that we all lose track of the nature of God and the reliability of God, the competency of God, that those things take us off track from showing up in the world the way that we are meant to show up in the world. And so if, on the one hand, like, what's your worry doing for you? And the answer is not much, at least not much that's good. At the other end of the spectrum, we, we might say that, like, rather than worrying, like, to be the kind of people who are growing in a deep awareness of the nature of God. And the more that we discover there that God is for us and with us, that God is love through and through, and that God is competent, the more that that happens, the more that we might become the kind of conduits through which God lives God's life. And maybe when that happens, the world looks a little more the way that God wants it to. And frankly, I think that what we would all discover is that the way that God wants the world to work is the way that we would all want it to work too if we were in our right mind, if we were um, kind of fully awake and alive to love to God, awake and alive to our neighbor, to the other human beings that we share this space with. We would want the kind of world that God wants. And we're most likely to get the kind of world that God wants when we become the kind of people who learn how to let God live God's life through us. And Jesus seems to be saying there's all these distractions, all these fears, all these lies, all these scarcity myths, all these problems that come at us that keep us from knowing that character that is in God that's with us. And so, um, so I would ask you, like, first of all, like, what's your worry doing for you? And by the way, let me say again, this isn't meant to beat up on anybody who's struggling with anxiety. Um, please don't hear this like that. And yet, I think a lot of us could realize that we get swept up, caught up in a lot of calculations about the future and have a hard time landing back in the present moment with God. But then Jesus gives us this practice. And so what I want to do next is kind of lead you through a practice. 
And here's the bummer, friends. Like, for those of us who are going to be able to be with us in our gatherings in person before we had to cancel them because of the furnace not working, I'm so bummed, man. We, we had this uh, beautiful plan. Um, we, we got our hands on hundreds of uh, fresh-cut live daisies. And what we were going to do was, at this point in the gathering, we were going to surprise you. You weren't going to see them when you walked in. But we are going to pull them out of the closet, and we are going to hand them out to everyone in the room. And we are going to do an actual meditation on a flower. They're not lilies. Jesus says lilies, but hey, whatever. They're daisies. And so we're going to have like everybody hold on to a, a beautiful, live, fresh-cut daisy. And I was just going to lead you through a meditation on like what you see there and see if it works on us a little bit. So here's the deal. Uh, some of you who are local and who are keeping up in real time, you know that we've uh, uh, not having the gathering at Studebaker, but we are, our team is going to be over there Sunday morning. So you might be listening to this podcast on Sunday morning. And uh, maybe you already heard this news. You could go over to Studebaker between 9 a.m. and noon and grab one of those flowers and take it home with you and say hi to the team that you maybe you were hoping to catch up with when you thought you would be at a gathering. But I'm guessing most of you don't have one of those daisies. But that doesn't mean you don't have something that you could meditate on right now. So I'm, I'm gonna, in a minute, I'm here gonna kind of move into a guided meditation. But before I do that, let me just call a timeout. Uh, for some, uh, maybe you're at home listening right now. Maybe you got a house plant that maybe is somehow like flourishing in the middle of winter. I don't know how you did that, but props to you. Uh, maybe you look out your window and you've got some perennial greens outside that window that you can t- pay attention to. Uh, maybe you wanna like pull up a picture on your phone or on your computer of a daisy or another flower or nature in some form or if none of that is available to you maybe you just want to conjure up in your mind an image or a memory of a flower uh, maybe specifically a daisy if you can think of what those look like or uh, some other kind of beautiful thing in nature and as you do that i just want to like call us to kind of drop down into our heart and into our body and breathe deeply and spend a few minutes meditating on what it is that we see when we look at nature And so I'm going to guide you through that now. Uh, Let me encourage you, first of all, just like take a few deep breaths. I don't know if you're on a treadmill or if you're commuting to work or if you're listening alone or with others, but let me encourage you first, just take a a minute here, put your feet flat on the floor if you can, uh, and breathe deeply and just try to be fully present. Now let me uh, start with the daisy as an example, whether you have one or not. Um, These flowers show up all over the place. They're found on every continent except Antarctica. They can live in both wet and dry climates. They can grow in full sun or full shade. They're resistant to pesticides and insects. That uh, beautiful common flower is itself a testament to resilience to life that can flourish in all kinds of circumstances. That beauty that you see, you know, the beautiful flower, the shape, the color, the size of those petals, you know, that's how bees are drawn to these flowers and do their pollinating work so that the flower can reproduce. And I've heard another teacher uh, point this out, like the beauty of that flower There's not some accessory, some add-on. It's actually part of its survival. It's part of how it propagates its own life in the world. It was made to be beautiful, and the beauty of it is part of its core life and work in the world. 
Daisies uh, have all sorts of medicinal properties. They're thought to slow bleeding, relieve indigestion, ease coughs. Uh, they're even thought to be a gardener's friend for their ability to ease an aching back. They can be used uh, as garnish in salads, soups. They offer a healthy dose of vitamin C. Uh, but if you have a daisy in hand or you're looking at one online or there's some other flower around you right now, consider um, all of the, the things that had to happen for that life to be here right now. I mean, like consider the vast conspiracy of things that had to happen so that that life could be here right now. I mean, every, everything from the balance of oxygen in our atmosphere and carbon dioxide to sunlight, which means, by the way, the sun keeps burning fairly reliably for us. Uh, the rotation of the earth from day to night and night to day and the seasons that come and go. And the soil that covers this earth from which things like flowers grow. And the army of bees that fly around the world tending to these flowers, pollinating them. You are, um, even if you're holding one flower, you have your hands on uh, not just a symbol, but a, an artifact of a vast conspiracy of competency, of uh, an unimaginable number of things coming together so that this life can be here and be beautiful. Now, maybe it's not a daisy that you're looking at. Maybe it's that house plant or you're looking out the window. But I think one thing that's hard for us to remember right now in a world where so many things are broken is that in spite of how many things are broken, many, many, many more things are working. Do you know that? I mean, whether it's a flower that you're holding or looking at or your own life, the fact that like the cells in your body or the cells in that plant are holding together right now is a miracle. It is a unexpected phenomenon that is the result of a vast conspiracy of things going right. And I don't know whether it's the world at large or whether it's your own personal life where it seems like more is wrong than is right, but I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you that in spite of all that is wrong in the world or in your life, there is way, 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 way more that is good and is working. And the breath that you are taking right now and the eyes with which you are looking at the things that you're looking at right now, I mean, these are gifts that we've been given. And they are reminders that we are being sustained by love. Now, if you're looking at something beautiful right now, uh, a picture of nature or an actual element of nature that you have in your hand, and if you're moved at all by the beauty of it, by the bravery of it, by the way that whatever that thing is, the way that it just shows itself in the world. I hope you can also feel somewhere deep inside that this is what God wants for us. Jesus says things like, I've come that you would have life and have it to the full, that you would show up full, that your life would be the full version of yourself, that you would know life in the spirit, which is kind of a way of saying like life from the true self and not just from the ego, but that you would like that you would be fully here, fully um, open to the world. Uh, you might feel like a lot of things are rooting against you. But Jesus seems to believe that God is for you. 
And that doesn't necessarily mean that things will get easier, but it means that underneath all the struggle, underneath all the difficulty, underneath all the hardship, that there's a deeper, more reliable reality, which is God and God's presence and God's love sustaining you today. And so if we are breathing, we are breathing grace and gift. And if we see anything beautiful, we are taking in grace and gift. And those graces and gifts are telling us the truth about God, that it's in the very nature of God to give. And so, of course, God gives us not just daisies and beautiful days and good teachings from Jesus. God gives us God's self. And if God will give us God's self, then we have nothing to worry about. It doesn't mean things will be easy. It doesn't mean tomorrow won't be hard. And, but, it, but it means that there's something deeper and truer and more reliable, that we have this life with God that cannot be taken away from us, and it will endure through everything if we learn how to trust it. And so, uh, friends, I hope that we can take Jesus seriously. We can ask hard questions about what our worry is doing for us. That we would become the kind of people who have a regular practice of meditating on that universe that, as Janine Benyus describes, is competent, where we are surrounded by genius. And uh, maybe this song will be a helpful way for you to meditate on that thought a little longer. Grace and peace, my friends.
Just.